All right, everybody. I do believe we are live. Welcome to another episode of the Break the Rules stream. I am your host, Love Polyakov, at LovePo on Twitter. And it is a wonderful pleasure to be here with Grayson Quay and Shay, a.k.a. Mr. Amazing. Mr. Amazing, one of the greatest YouTubers I have recently seen. I've been watching your documentaries about Little Peep, about uh, philosophy, about all kinds of things. Music, philosophy, you name it, you are one of the up-and-coming rising stars of YouTube, and Grayson Quay, you are a wonderful writer for The Spectator, for uh, where you're recently writing right now, for The Daily Caller, right? Yeah, that's where I'm an editor. Uh, yeah. Excellent, excellent. And shout-out to Philip Daniel in the chat. Welcome, Philip. So today we're going to be talking about religion, joined by Nasik Informant, Neil, a little bit later, but... Uh, the subject concerning religion is whether we need, society needs, organized religion as opposed to just spirituality. And this is something I was talking before about with Shay. So, uh, yeah, let me know. Let's start with Shay. Anything also, if you want to add as far as why you do the kind of work you do, feel free to uh, tell uh, the people a little bit about yourself and yeah. then where you stand on this particular question. Yeah, sure. So I guess starting with myself, um, I make videos on YouTube. I've been doing it for about six or seven years now, if not seven or eight. Um, started out doing stuff that's radically different from what I do now. I just made compilation videos. Over time, I became more interested in what I would just call social and cultural criticism. Um, and then most recently, I've become very concerned with uh, rigorous philosophical ways we can go about doing that. That's not just merely opining about those things. So... Right now, I'm on a bit of a hiatus uh, because I, I want to get things together so I can do the work that I think is, is good to do uh, as strongly as I can do it. So that's what I'm about. That's what I believe in. Um, in terms of the question at hand, I think my view is somewhat ambivalent, though I would say I lean towards society not needing organized religion uh, for the sake of polemics for the moment. Though I can see the merits in what organized religion does for society, I think... Uh, it needs to be explicated to a very deep degree uh, until what I think the most obvious and common sense criticisms of it can be done away with. So By the way, be, thank you. Before we get started uh, delving into all this a little bit more, I am noticing a little bit of whistling going on with your audio. I'm not sure if it's the right mic. Would there be any way when Grayson is going to be speaking for you to try out either a different mic or something? I was not expecting that whistling sound to come in. I don't know what it is. Grayson, do you also hear that whistling sound? Am I the only one? Am I going crazy here? I wasn't hearing anything, no, but... Uh... All right, hopefully, chat, let me know if you're hearing any whistling sound. If not, then it's only me, and I am going to take that torture for your sake. That's how much of a saintly person I am. If the chat does not hear, if, it, if nobody else hears it, then we're good. But anyway, uh, yes, so, Grayson, let's get a little bit from your end as well about whether society needs religion or not. Uh, yeah, so just by way of introduction, uh, I'm Grayson Quay. I... Uh, started freelance writing in about 2016 and have kind of expanded uh, through that. I do uh, kind of like Shay was saying, I do a lot of kind of cultural criticism. Um, I write pieces as well on religion, politics, um, arts, whatever. Uh, I'm currently an editor at The Daily Caller and I write a mostly regular column for The Spectator World. In terms of the question at hand, I wanted to begin with a quote from G.K. Chesterton, who is one of my 
favorite writers. Uh, and he said in his introduction to the book of Job, the modern habit of saying every man has a different philosophy. This is my philosophy and it suits me. Uh, the habit of saying this is mere weak mindedness. A cosmic philosophy is not constructed to fit a man. A cosmic philosophy is constructed to fit a cosmos. A man can no more possess a private religion than he can possess a private moon and sun. And I'm really looking forward to getting into this topic. Uh, it sounds like we're going to have a an interesting and kind of nuanced discussion, which is good. I was uh, somewhat dreading that Shay would come up here uh, prepared for a, a, a bare knuckle debate, and I just haven't had time to prepare for something like that. So, well, let's start with that as well. So, uh, Shay, what do you think of that private moon, private sun argument? Yeah, yeah. I think for me, the biggest difficulty when it comes to talking about the organization of religion is. I mean, to go off the Chesterton quote, when we're talking about the sun and the moon, we're talking about something that is present to anybody who simply looks out in the sky. And so there's something tangible there that is, uh, I'll have to apologize, or I'll have to apologize for this. I tend to use words that may obscure my meaning. So if I do that at all, tell me I'm doing so. So to go back to what I was saying, the sun and the moon are circumscribed in space. You can see them and you can point to them. Now in religion, we're usually talking about things that are not so circumscribed. We're talking about abstract metaphysical posits. And I think this creates a good deal of difficulty when it comes to how individuals relate to the dogmas that are imposed on them by an organized religion. Now, does that mean that then we only have recourse to a private religion? I don't think so. I do think that does mean that organized religion needs to be suspect, though. Mm, so what you're saying is that organized religion is a little bit sus. Yeah. All right, there we go. But when it comes to how people have interpreted organized religion, there's a hierarchy. There are certain people who are considered to be the experts. I know, Grayson, in a lot of the things that uh, you've been experiencing when it comes to the control of our, uh, you know, very big media establishments by people who have a very particular way of thinking about things, they call themselves the experts on various topics, and there are all kinds of people who are constantly saying, no, these are not the experts, yet they call themselves. That's always been a big problem for me with organized religion, that one set of experts says one thing, another says another thing, and it's just going to be up to, I guess, chalking it all up to faith, as opposed to the other route, which is gaining wisdom from within oneself. So where do you personally, before we continue on this, where do you personally fall within that um, within that spectrum of seeking wisdom out through various personal means versus subscribing to what's already been written? Uh, is this one to me? Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, sure. So what I think is that what you're referring to, the idea of seeking after wisdom kind of uh, with one's own resources and on one's own terms as opposed to um, accepting dogmas handed down by these religious experts is a tradition that has existed and has been uh, tried and developed. Um, I think that what you're referring to there is in many ways the Platonic tradition, um, which is this idea that through kind of contemplation of higher truths, one can ascend toward an appreciation of uh, the uh, ultimately the form of the good, um, that that is something you can perceive uh, with your your sort of natural faculties, that it's something that's inborn into all of us and we simply have to uh, discover it through contemplation. 
Um, the problem with this, I think, is that it ends up being a very elitist form of spirituality. Um, you can see a form of it uh, developed within Christianity as the Pelagian heresy, which interestingly is often miscast in modern discussions as a more lenient or enlightened form of Christianity in the sense that it relies more on uh, one's own efforts rather than a uh, superadded divine grace. But the problem with that is if you look at the actual writings of Pelagians, which granted are mostly preserved in long quotes uh, and polemics against them, um, you'll find that it's this very harsh and elitist form of spirituality where you essentially had a highly ascetic and highly educated elite um, who were incredibly well-read in theology and in Neoplatonic philosophy. And these people said, because we have perfected ourselves and are seeking after the good to the exclusion of all worldly things, we are the ones who will be saved. And we have done this through our own efforts and through our own contemplation. And, you know, if you're Pelagius, maybe that's great. But if you're a British peasant, uh, <laughs> Uh, at the same time that he's writing, that's probably not so good for you. Um, you probably don't have the leisure or the education to experience that, but you can walk yourself down to the local, you know, rough-hewn stone parish church and have the priest say hocus pocus and place the body of God on your tongue. Now, I'm not going to say that this peasant had a perfect understanding of what was happening um, or had the, the rich understanding maybe of theology that... Uh, some of that his uh, Pelagian contemporaries may have had. But I think there's something to be said for um, organized religion as having this somewhat leveling influence and, and militating against this elitism that can emerge from uh, individualized spirituality. Interesting. Uh, your thoughts, Jay? Yeah, I mean, I'm not too familiar with many of the early heresies. Um, but I do think that is an interesting example, pitting the idea of a kind of self-cultivational elitism, uh, forming a kind of uh, coterie of the elect, so to speak, against what is widely distributed in terms of, uh, we could say maybe a bottomward descent from the upper echelons of the church hierarchy to the underlings, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a difficult issue because from my view, Unless the dogmas that are believed in are in some sense still, for lack of a better word, democratically uh, decided upon in some way or another, I still think there's something that has to be suspect about that. I don't know what you think about that. But I mean, in terms of like that dichotomy that you're posing, Grace, and I totally agree that at that level, organization is certainly a better model than uh, a model that subscribes to every individual for themselves, kind of isolated, collecting together them such that some people are better than others, there's an elect and a damned. You know, I think that's easily at the worst end of the spectrum. Grayson? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious what you mean about uh, determining truth democratically here. Certainly you and I would agree that um, if all three of us say two and two is five, it doesn't make it so. And if uh, we pulled the entire world and they said two and two is five, it doesn't make it so. So mm -hmm. uh, do you think you could elaborate on that, uh, that point you made yeah. a little bit? Yeah. Something I really appreciate about the history of the Catholic Church is that dogma is by and large determined by church councils. Of course, the Pope can also speak ex cathedra, but um, 
councils are, for instance, as far as we know, the means by which the Bible itself is situated. Now, there is a certain degree of elitism that goes into, even today, the way bishops are elected, and of course they have to go through seminary. I don't know how that happened 1,500 years ago. I have no idea. But, I mean, of course, I can't really speak to the necessity with which I would say this, because I don't go to church that often, but at least intuitively, in terms of what I think is best for uh, the way we talk about these kinds of things, there should be a greater degree of openness with which the metaphysical disputes that go on in a church council are open to the rest of the world. Now, do I mean something like live streaming that? Do I mean like a referendum? Probably not, uh, because at this point in time, I don't think the education that's requisite to participate in those disputes is quite as widespread as it needs to be. But, um, you know, it would be really nice if that did happen and if that education was widespread and then if there was greater openness to that kind of thing does that make and, sense sure uh yeah i'll, I'll uh, i have a response to that but Lev, i'll let you uh, welcome our new guest here yes yeah, so right now we have uh one more guest coming in here the great neil gnostic informant a uh, very long time has not been on btr now finally back on btr welcome buddy it's a great pleasure to have you here with us and i think this is a good time for you to come in because uh we were just talking about uh grayson was pointing out the pelagian heresy and pointing out this tendency of these people who think that they're in the elite who think they're all like these know-it-alls to determine everything else for everybody else but while I don't know that much about the Pelagian heresy, isn't this the problem whether we talk about Martin Luther or the other people talking about the elect or if we're talking about corrupt priests, you know, having people buy their way into heaven? This seems like something that would transcend any particular heresy. This seems, seems like something that's part and parcel. You know, we have a, a Kirill in Russia, uh, you know, the patriarch there with his... Uh, million dollar watch you know his rolex you know this is something that's part and parcel to every single organized religion so why single this particular heresy out first of all and second of all is this not the big problem here when it comes to organized religion you're always going to have them this hierarchy this corruption that's going to make it a lot worse for the people below so i don't know uh, uh gnostic i know you weren't here from the beginning but with that being said to kind of bring you into this conversation would you have any response to what i just said yeah sure um my response to that would be i don't see i don't i mean to go back to early and we're talking about christianity right we're we talking about yeah christianity although religion in a broad sense but we're specifically talking about christianity at the yeah. moment since this is something that's a lot closer to us sure. well if you go back to the earliest christians that we can um that we can see in history in the historical record through through like the um the church fathers passing down what we have also archaeology you know non-commodity stuff like that the, the farther back you go the more variety you get so early on in the sec early second century end of the first century you have different groups in egypt different groups in syria different groups in uh, asia minor and they have their own way of sort of getting at this new thing the jews at that point are already calling this whole thing a heresy they don't, they're not liking it. That's why you got the Tosefta records, the Talmud later on. They don't like it. They're just like, these guys are just heretics. But Paul's like, all right, screw it. I'm just going to go to the Gentiles and talk to these people. They, 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 they'll get saved. Long story short, you get you end up with a bunch of different groups like the Nascenes, the Carpocratians, the Simonians. Um, you have people like the uh, Mar um, Marcionites. All these different groups are completely, completely opposite of each other. As far as their theology, 
the only thing they have in common is they believe Jesus is the Christ. And so the Carpenter Christians, for example, they're worshiping Jesus. They're, they're the first recorded Christians to have a, an image of Jesus, as we know. There might be someone before that, but for, for what we know right now, they're the first. But they also had a statue of Plato and Pythagoras right next to them as like minor prophets, like a Moses and an Elijah type of characters. So you see that going on. You see with the Simonians, they're putting Simon Magus up as like a, another Christ, basically. He's a minor Christ, basically. You got Jesus and Simon Magus. And then you have with the Nazine preacher, extremely popular in the second century. He's not called a heretic till 200 years after he's dead. During his lifetime, he's extremely popular. Everyone loves him. He's 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 uh he's repurposing old hymns to Addis and Osiris and putting them on Jesus and saying they thought they were worshiping Addis, they thought they were worshiping Osiris, but really what they were trying to get at was the Christ. So you see these different ideas coming through Hellenism and Platonism early on, and there's a wide range of varieties. I think that's good. The idea of heresy doesn't come till later on. And I think that they sort of ruined Christianity, in my in my my opinion. I'm some of them I disagree with that. <laughs> I personally think so. I think we're we're, we're going to get uh, deeper into that as we go on. But the main question I'd say, going back to Grayson here, is why specifically uh, isolate these uh, Pelagians as having this kind of quality? Like I just mentioned, all these other uh, groups have a similar kind of qualities of eliteness to them. And also, if you guys are enjoying this, need those super chats. If you have any questions, anything you want us to cover. Sneed those super chats right now and don't forget to subscribe. So, Grayson, uh, what, what do you make of that? So, my point with bringing up the Pelagians wasn't so much to illustrate an example, to provide an example of a uh, religious, of an organized religious hierarchy becoming corrupt. It was more the idea of um, an instantiation of this Platonic idea of a private religion or a private spirituality, this, this kind of ascent mm. to universal truths. Uh, spiritual truths that's accessible to everyone uh, making its way into Christianity. Um, yes, I agree with you. Obviously, there's always going to be corrupt people in the hierarchies of organized religions. The difference, I think, between someone like Patriarch Kirill and uh, Pelagians, who uh, had were in authority in the church in, in certain places for a time, is that Kirill does not make a claim that he is spiritually superior to a devout uh illiterate rural russian peasant um he can't make that claim it's it's inaccessible to him it's, it is ruled out by the theology he ascribes to um that that has been passed to him as dogmatic um and that means in you know a hundred years maybe this illiterate russian peasant will be venerated as a saint and Kirill uh people you know throw rocks at his grave um <laughs> This is my point. Oh, easy there, Nostradamus. Go on. Yeah. My point is that, so my point is, you know, let <laughs> we can survive the uh, material corruption of hierarchies and even the moral corruption of hierarchies. What I don't want to have, uh, what I want to avoid more than anything else is the idea of a, uh, of a hierarchy that is spiritual in the sense that some people get to claim uh, spiritual superiority to other people um, in the sense that because I am more enlightened, I am I am more than you, I am greater than you. And I think that the benefit of having a dogmatic organized religion, um, especially in the case of Christianity, is that it ties these people is that it ties people together in these bonds of solidarity. 
Interesting, though. I want to, Shay, go first. I would love to hear what you have to say. And there are, uh, Sorry, let me just, let oh, me just add. Oh, sure. I mean, there are, sure, there sure. Are great, yeah. So there are great scholars in Christian history, um, like Origen or Tertullian, who... Um, Tertullian pretty uh, inarguably uh, becomes, a, I believe, a Montanist, uh, which is a, a heresy, although I'm sure Gnostic has things to say about that. Origen just kind of has some strange ideas about certain things and also uh, castrates himself. Um, but these great scholars in Christian history are not saints. And then there are people who could not even read who are venerated as saints to this day who were their contemporaries. So that is my point, is that um, because this is not a private spirituality that you have to ascend to through private enlightenment, there is that um, sort of democratization of... Uh, mm. Interesting. So, uh, Shay, yeah, let me know what you think, and then Gnostic. Yeah. I mean, I suppose my concern is a bit tangential, but I would still say it is relevant. And it's the fact that, to use a relatively niche example, though in the case of Christianity, it's certainly relevant, um, you could pick up something like the relationship between uh, God the Son and God the Father, uh, and the relationship with the dual hypostases in Christ, and you could ask how that is concretely going to bear out for practice. That is for the individual and then even collective practices of local parishes. Now, I would say a strong Orthodox individual, not religiously Orthodox, that is, but like somebody who believes in whatever is Orthodox to whatever sect of Christianity we're talking about, they're going to say that believing in these things is going to have direct outpourings on practice, because if you believe this, then you will do this, then you will do that, so on and so forth. So, for instance, if you believe Christ, uh, per like the Arian view, is just like adopted by God, then there is really no reason to take the host, for instance. That would be like a one-to-one -one correspondence there. But what I think is at issue then is part of Christ's message in the gospel is lost when this kind of doctrinaire thinking is present in organized religion. That is to say, when Christ is concerned, for instance, with out, uh, throwing out the money changers from the temple, right? Something like that is very easily obscured with these centuries-long debates about the dual hypostases of Christ. I think that's a problem, and I think that organized religion makes that problem easier. So this isn't directly bearing on anything you said, Grayson, so I apologize for that, but I I still think it, it is relevant. No, that's totally fine. And what I would say in response to that is that in, especially in the 20th century, there was this big scholarly project of the, the search for the historical Jesus. Um, you know, let's, let's really read the gospels and let's figure out what Jesus actually said and what, uh, you know, was written in later and put in his mouth by, by church leaders who wanted to further their own agendas. Um, and what we figured out pretty quickly is that conveniently, the historical Jesus shares whatever the theological and political uh, priorities of the scholar investigating the historic Jesus were. Um, so when you say like, okay, the, when you say, okay, Jesus and his sort of direct and authentic teachings have been obscured in some way by these centuries of uh, theological debate and discernment, um, I think, in fact, it's the exact opposite. I think that um, in many ways, uh, if you just take Jesus apart from any, uh, any authoritative structure for interpreting his teachings, then Jesus just becomes a Rorschach test for whatever you happen to, to like. Um, 
which is how you get, you know, hippie flowers in his hair Jesus and, and AR-15 Jesus. <laughs> I I really want uh, Nastic to uh, go on either one of those two things, because right now you're talking about Jesus, but before we were talking about the Iranians and this uh, particular difference you noted in organized religion provided for the peasants to be venerated as saints and not having this top-down hierarchy of, oh, we're we're Mr. Smarty Pants over here and you people below are just like the low-life peasants. So I don't know. Neil, whichever one of those you want to take, uh, go right ahead. I just think it's ironic that you're the message that Jesus gives out when he's up against the, fa- the Sar- uh, uh, Sadducees and the Pharisees is a message of, you know, being being circumcised in the heart and not in the flesh so like that that attitude whereas like the logos even before jesus the concept of the logos was like all pervasive truth and wisdom like without any um without any basically like uh assigned laws like you are that like you, you the, there's nothing wrong with the laws but you do those anyway but like for example when he says when he says okay well, it's on the sabbath and an animal falls in the ditch you're gonna pull him out like, come on, it's common sense. We don't have to follow these laws are are good, but we we can we can use our common sense. It's the lo- I'm the logos. Let, let's let's be real here. I think it's ironic that you go from that to this centuries long debate on doctrine and all these like little details, and they're it's missing the point. I feel like, if that if that makes sense. What would you say the point is that's being missed? The point. Well, the point he he makes it very easy. Believe in him. And that's it. And then everything else will follow. Like that's your only real, real, um, your only real law, I guess, that you really need to do. So yeah. everything else you're throwing out. No, you're not is... not throwing them out. But I'm saying you would, you should. It shouldn't be a. It shouldn't be the mo- the biggest concern. Is what I'm saying. Hmm. Sure. Okay. So you you do have uh, seek you first the kingdom of God. Uh, and all these things will be added unto you. You also have, um, I say to you, that not a single iota of the law will pass away and uh, a curse pronounced on anyone who relaxes those um, those pronouncements. Now, yes, Jesus does um, break the law. He talks about pulling the uh, your ass out of a ditch, for example. Uh, your donkey, not your your own ass. Although, And not just to do it. You could, you could pull not, your own ass out. Not just to do it just to be an asshole, to do it because that's common sense in the situation. Sure, and also his uh, his disciples glean, glean yeah. grain as they walk through a field on the and, Sabbath. And, and by um, the way, that's that's literally an ass hole, right? That's a hole that an ass is stuck in. But anyway, go on. I just I couldn't help myself. Um, so my point is that he's not he's um, appealing to a a spirit that underlies the law, um, but he's viewing the law as a a manifestation of that spirit in history at Sinai. He's not. Um, and I mean, maybe that dovetails with your idea of the Logos, but it is interesting that he also claims to be the Logos, having been um, shaped by and in many ways still um, still beholden to uh, Jewish uh, Jewish law and Jewish teaching as it developed in history. Yeah, I think, but and I I think it's because it's not that he was anti-law or anything. Like he, like you said, he's saying that. One I not one iota will be passed from the law, but he's he's being he's being realistic about it. He's being he understands that that is not what it's all about. It's all about the the love and the faith of God. It's not about 
like like the, the the idea of the logos is that you don't need to be prescribed laws to like when you're prescribed laws you're you're trying to be somebody that someone else has prescribed for you you're trying to fit what the book tells you to do when you're when you're circumcised in the heart and you don't even look, you don't even need the law you do those things anyway just automatically that's the whole point you don't need the laws you don't need the books it's great those are yeah those are all good stuff we, that moses handed those down we should we should be we should keep those there but if you don't need it, you don't. If you have that already inside of you, you won't even need to read it once because you'll just do it anyway. So, what would you be? So, on the given that, uh, what would you be objecting to within the the modern practice of, I don't know, say say Roman Catholicism? Uh, well, I don't really have a problem with today's Roman Catholicism. I think I don't. Have, I really don't have any problems with it. I just think that. Um, well, going back to the original subject, it's not Sorry, so yeah, much whether no, 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 no yeah. it's it's not so much whether there is problems. It's more of whether we even need a lot of these uh, organized religions today. So I want to make sure that we circle back to that particular uh, subject. No, no, I think that's a good point. I think a good question. I, I don't. I think the, the Roman Catholic Church has its purpose. It, it, you know, it's it's it has charities that it um, that it, it takes care of and. I don't have a problem. People, people love the Catholic Church. They get their they they get fulfillment from it. There's, I'm not trying to take that away from anybody, but I think other outlets are just as uh, viable or or useful, if that makes sense. I see what you're saying. Yeah, and I was I was curious about a remark you made earlier where you said that the the idea of heresy um, ruined Christianity, and I would say that today uh, you you have your wish, right? There's there's yeah, what thirty thousand. Different Christian denominations, and probably a new one was founded while I was was speaking this sentence. Um, so, do you see that as uh, do you see that as an improvement or as like a course correction? Absolutely, I think, and you don't see you don't see the Catholic Church or the Pope today going after heresy anymore. So it's like, okay, at least you know that's that's a good thing, right? They're not, you know, that's not mm. like the, it's not like it's thirteen hundreds anymore, you know. But isn't the but isn't the truth being obscured? Then you'd say if there's all of these different things that we get to choose from, how do we really know which one is the real one? Unless we're assuming they're all true, which they can't all be true at the same time, right? Why like not? I don't, I don't know, uh, Shay. When it comes to all of this multiple choices that people have, if the end goal is for us, what to know the truth, find the truth, or is it to just uh, live in peace? Like, I don't know where our priorities lie here, but I guess the initial question is, for the majority of people, what would make for a better society? I guess it wouldn't really be to seek the truth. What it, it w would just be to pick something and have it work for them, but have it be something that would be able to function in a society where there's so many different choices, so many different distractions. So that's kind of like the thing that I want to narrow in on and curious what you think. Yeah, I mean, for me, when we're talking about choices and we're talking about heresies, I think it comes back to this question of the doctrines that one is believing in when one is picking between one uh, sect of Protestantism or orthodoxy over another. Uh, for instance, uh, a lot of my family is Catholic, but one of them married a Moravian. I don't even know the difference, but apparently they predate Lutheranism. But they're not Lutheran. They're, they're different somehow. But this is a subtle difference of doctrine. And this, again, comes back to the point I was trying to make about the relationship between doctrine and practice. And when we're talking about what exactly religion is supposed to do for practice, if we don't have a view towards that and we don't have a view towards the individuals who are practicing the religion, reforming the doctrine that determines practice, then uh, I don't see the point. Yeah, and this is one of those things that I can that I can honestly uh... To be perfectly honest, I get frustrated with with certain Christian thinkers on this, where 
they'll take a particular doctrinal dispute that was resolved in a particular way and say, okay, because of this particular doctrinal dispute, this affects, um, you know, the actual uh, practice of the church and, and even like Christian morality down through the ages in these concrete ways. Um, Orthodox, uh, Eastern Orthodox Christians famously tend to do this with the, uh, the idea of adding the filioque to the Nicene mm -hmm. Creed um, that, oh, like here's all the ripple effects of adding the filioque. And to be perfectly honest, I, I truly don't understand the distinction between uh, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father or proceeding from the Father and the Son. Uh, is, that the is that the filioque? Is that the filioque? Yeah, this is, this, is a, this is a dispute between the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches. And the, there's a side note, but the, the Roman Catholics are happy to, to grant that exception uh, or that difference to the Eastern Orthodox. They don't see it as making a... a an earth shattering difference. The Orthodox have kind of staked their claim on this and, and say that it has all these massive ripple effects. <laughs> I have trouble seeing those. And I think that a lot of the time that's based on, on conjecture. So, you know, your, your objection is, is well taken Shay. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's the problem think... I'm, I'm trying to raise though, this problem of ripple effects and the fact that people who support doctrine are still going to try to point it out that even the subtlest difference of wording can somehow have ripple effects for doctrinal practice. I don't know. I think that's an issue for institutional. Sure. Right. I mean, I'm not willing to, I'm not willing to throw out the entire idea though. For example, I think that the, uh, the rejection of Arianism, um, for example, the idea that, uh, you had a being that was was fully God and fully man. That um, Christ, uh, the baby in the in the manger, was the God who created the universe. Um, does have striking implications for our view of um, of material reality and of the human body um, that mm. I think are are paying dividends down to this day. But what has I think even more of a striking uh, and uh, result is TikTok where we have all these Zoomers who are on the TikTok and they're programmed by China, communist China, with their... I mean, uh, Mr. Amazing Shay, you did a whole video about TikTok, so you know better than anybody here about how addicting a lot of this stuff is. So why would young people care about Arianism? Well, I mean, certain young people on 4chan care about a different kind of Arianism, but let's leave that aside. Uh, when, it when it comes to uh, getting the next gen interested in culture interested in community going to church on sunday just having some kind of a semblance of living in the real world as opposed to living in the pot and eating the bugs that's the big challenge that i want to address here because they see christianity they also see things that are uh saying well jesus never even existed you know why don't you go buddhism why don't you go with hinduism it's like what exactly would lead me to believe that this is correct that jesus is correct i'm just you know what i'm not gonna bother i'm just gonna go on tiktok so this is the crisis today how would you guys all of you starting with shay but how would you guys address that particular problem here yeah i mean i think it does begin with for fear of sounding like uh, a corporate stooge that'll also be sounding like a bit of a marketer there has to be some kind of outreach and i mean i know there are some apps that exist there's like halo i heard about that recently 
I don't know what good that really does for people who aren't already within the pre-established mechanisms of belief, but I think there has to be an emphasis on the on-the-ground consequences of these kinds of beliefs. Like, how many people who are really involved, like a Pat Robertson, are, are talking about, like, the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, blessed are the this and the that, that really instantiate these concrete dicta for how one is supposed to live their lives around other people. I mean, as we had been pointing out earlier, you look at the highest Christians in the world today in terms of those that command the most authority, they are typically not living by those very things that Christ himself talked about. So I think that kind of thing is certainly important. Now, of course, that uh, can risk politicizing things, but I think that's what people are looking for. For instance, if you're looking, if you want to compare against Buddhism, there's like the Eightfold Path, the Noble Truths, and so forth. This lays out a grid and a groundwork whereby action is considered moral and edifying. Uh, Christianity tends not to, I don't know, at least in the public sphere, not go that route. And it, it leads more towards a kind of, at least if we're talking like in contemporary political debates, leads to uh, moralizing in the worst way that is in terms of like abortion rather than like how the individual person should conduct themselves. That doesn't seem to be emphasized, at least not in my experience. So I think moving in that direction would be very helpful. Mm. Grayson, what you make of that? Um, so I had a few thoughts and I was just jotting down some notes. Um, so with your, your reference to TikTok and with people having all these, uh, all these options and all these uh, voices pulling them in different directions, this is why I would say, uh, to go back to a discussion we were having earlier, that truth cannot be democratic um, and that spirituality cannot be personal. Um, I think we're living in a world in which it very much is, um, and we're seeing the results of that in this insane level of fragmentation and the sense of alienation that comes along with it. Um, whenever it does become you know, democratic and, and personalized, I think you see what you see is the immediate domination of whatever the zeitgeist happens to be. So there's this movement toward uh, synodality that's happening among Roman Catholics in Germany, uh, where they want to create kind of a, a Congress of the laity that can vote on, on matters of doctrine and practice. And of course, what do they vote for? Well, of course, they vote for ordaining women and blessing gay weddings. Um, and I'm not wading into those issues, but of course, those are things that are uh, condemned in historic Roman Catholic doctrine and are celebrated in the modern zeitgeist. Uh, I said something similar with the historic Jesus idea, and I think it's not a coincidence that the that the churches that are the most resilient to the zeitgeist are the ones that are the most established and institutional, um, specifically the Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches. Um, you know, you see, um, you see evangelicalism, for example, going woke at a an alarming rate. The mainline Protestant churches have been toast since the 1960s. Um, so I think that when you um, when you deinstitutionalize these things, or even when you uh, loosen the um, the power of doctrine to bind those institutions across centuries, what you see is just the triumph of the spirit of the age, just whatever happens to be polling well at the moment. And I think that that should give us pause because there are times in history when what is polling well might be slavery or eugenics. Um, <laughs> you know, there was, uh, I quoted G.K. Chesterton earlier, Chesterton wrote a book in the early 20th century against eugenics at a time when opposing eugenics would have been equivalent to denying climate change today. 
what are you talking about, bro? It's just science that we need to sterilize everyone below this IQ. Um, and he's been vindicated with time, uh, but he made this stand on the grounds of a, you know, at that time, 1900-year-old Christian tradition as expressed dogmatically through the, the Catholic Church over time. Now, I have a question for you on that, actually. Do you think that that is a hard and fast dichotomy that there is what's, I mean, to put it in, let's say, philosophical terms, eternal and absolutely true on one side, and then what is just changing and becoming and forever changing on the other? Like, is is that the only way to, let's say, uh, cut up all possible contenders for what is true for now within the sphere of religion and spirituality like is that the only way we need to look at it because i don't i would say we don't i think there can be things that become progressively more true with time and i think there are aspects of even the church that would say that that's also true so i i'm just curious what you think about that yeah no i'd reject that pretty pretty strongly um i think that our our understanding of certain things uh can change and i think that it's very difficult often to separate out what our cultural preferences are from what the absolute and eternal truth is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, V-Day slavery, for example. Um, mm -hmm. But no, I think that, um, I think, and I strongly believe, I mean, I uh, earlier I was reciting the creed during our sound check um, and I stand by that, even though it was decided, even though it was, it was promulgated 1700 years ago. Um, I think that our our understanding of eternal principles and our application of them can change, but I don't think those eternal principles change. Mm. Would it be fair to say, and I want to get Gnostic in this as well, would it be fair to say that the eternal principles, they may not change, but maybe the particular figures who were involved with those principles and the particular methods of getting closer to those principles, those are subject to change. For example, again, like I always bring up the whole other planets thing, which, you know, some people, some weird people scoff at. And I don't think they should, because if we look outside, see all these galaxies, all these planets out there, surely there's life there. And if there is intelligent life out there, they probably did not have a Jesus Christ, but they may have had something else occur there that led them to similar conclusions. So I always bring that up. And I don't know, uh, Neil, what is your take? Because you've been through the ringer. You were a more Republican-leaning, you know, very heavily mega-church-attending uh, young gentleman, and then you all of a sudden changed, started learning Hebrew, and just went, went crazy. So I'm kind of curious from somebody like yourself who has seen all of these different things, all of these, uh, all these different explanations of what exactly occurred back then, what would you make of these eternal principles versus, as I said, attaching those eternal principles to particular things that may be more flexible? Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I, I, don't you think Christianity itself is a change from the norm before it? I mean, you have you have this, even the Pharisees was a, even during the second temple period, during the Pharisees, they were more, they were before the Pharisees the, to, to adopt Greek mythology or Greek or played or read Plato and incorporate that through the lens of the Torah. That would have been blasphemous. And the Pharisees were doing that in the second century BC, first century BC, up until the time of Christianity, where you have these Christians coming along and they would have been, they would have been the, uh, the, the 
uh, equal to what we call today an SJW, I think. I mean, they're talking about putting women in, in certain positions in the church, um, all these things that wasn't happening before that all of a sudden is allowed. All, all, you know, circumcision, uh, just get circumcised in the heart. Like a lot of this stuff would, would have seemed progressive for the time, which I think sets the stage for what Christianity does itself. I think it, I think the reason, the reason why the West has that like deep layer of progressive attitude is from Christianity. Don't you think? Oh yeah, I certainly agree. Um, I mean, Tom Holland's book Dominion really kind of lays out that case in a lot of detail and I think it's, it's very well done Um, to your point. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's something that, anyone who is a Christian who also identifies himself as a conservative has to grapple with that um, in the early centuries of Christianity, it was Rome that was conservative and it was, um, you know, it was Christianity that was, was revolutionary, not in a violent sense. Um, You know, Christianity always eschewed violent revolution, but in the sense that, yeah, Christianity was, was mocked. We have records of Roman elites mocking Christianity because it is the religion of women and slaves, the two like, most low-status uh, groups in, in ancient Rome. Um, and if you look at the Book of Acts, for example, talking about what is yours is mine, what is mine is yours, throw all your, all your riches at the feet of the apostles. Let's, let's live a sort of communistic lifestyle. Not, I don't mean like USSR type. I mean, like sure. Christian, Christian communists, yeah. or or kind of like what the Iranians did. Uh, I think after the uh, was it after the Sasanians, or I don't remember exactly when. There was like this cult which gained power in Iran. It was like a proto-communism. You know what I'm talking about? I'm not familiar. All right, I'll, but we're, so where I'll meet you halfway though, given all this stuff about about Roman paganism. Uh, Kurt Vonnegut interestingly makes this point where he says that you know Kurt Vonnegut, who identifies himself as a Christ-loving atheist. Um, He makes this point that Rome had an established religion, right? Rome had Roman paganism, which was remarkably, which just to ding you guys a little bit, was remarkably tolerant and and open to other ideas and to drawing equivalencies uh, between those. Very nice. Well, the the Augustan reforms was a big change. And this is right before the life of Jesus. So this was a there was a universal Roman imperial cult sort of um, statutes in place. Within sure, yeah, as long as as long as you're yeah, exactly. As long as you worship the emperor, you can have your own gods and we'll even like match them and play around with them. And, you know, maybe this one's also kind of this one. And maybe, you know, we'll have a little fad where we all worship Egyptian gods for a while, that kind of thing. Um, But Rome, what what Vonnegut said is Rome has this um, imperial cult that is a civil religion, essentially. You know, it's it's saying the pledge of allegiance before the, the NFL game. Right. It's. It's highly impersonal and civic. And then against that, you have Christianity that's highly communitarian and, um, you know, very focused on the the downtrodden in society. And that this is why Christianity, he argues, triumphs over over Roman paganism. So I'll give you guys that. But I think it's I think it's important to note that Christianity uh, does not then become, you know, anarchic, that um you know, there there is certainly theological diversity in the in the early ten- centuries, which I would refer to as heresy. But um, you do kind of have a through line, um, and Christianity remains institutional. And I think that that's important. I think it's important that you hold those two things in tension, because I think if you have a Roman style impersonal you know, purely civic 
imperial cult, then you essentially have this very repressive top-down thing that doesn't allow for uh, renewal within it or for, for any of these creative or I will say even progressive energies to create that renewal. But if you have something that's purely anarchic, it quickly devolves into this hyper-individualism, this alienation that we're experiencing right now, um, you know, potentially into this spiritual elitism. So I think that Christianity uniquely has the ability, uh, due to the paradoxes that are at the heart of it, that kind of are the, the nuclear core of Christianity, I think, um, to hold those two things in tension. So 1400 years later, you get a figure like St. Francis of Assisi, who is as subversive and as much of a hippie as you can be. Um, But he ultimately submits himself and exists within the structure of the church. Um, And he he renews it in some really amazing ways. And now there are radical um, followers of St. Francis who are known as the Fraticelli, who break off from the Catholic Church and form these radical uh, kind of communist societies and start murdering nobles in the night and trying to take their, their wealth and redistribute it. And they're kind of quickly put down. But I think it's worth noting that, um, you know, when the fire stays in the fireplace, it can keep the family warm and cook your food. When the fire gets outside the fireplace, it'll burn your freaking house down. Anybody who wants to take that to first, I mean, I, yeah, you made some fair points there, and I and I think um, I think when we look at the changes that happen with the the Roman religion, you know how you have this Vatican that's already in place, you have this um, you have this uh, this vest temple of Vesta with these with the women there and this Vestal sort of virgins, they, they all sort of get converted over to Christianity in in, in their own ways where. They they still have you still have that same sort of ecclesia. The church is still there because that church goes back to before they were even Christian. They were just like sort of they brought their job was to make sure you you get the dead bodies, bring them to the catacombs, bury them, and then all of a sudden their Christianity is getting tossed into the mix, and um, you start seeing Christian Kairos and Adelphoi and on in these catacombs right, right along the pagans, and um, I think there was. Th- I think it was fine for a while how it was with that. And then I think you see this sort of the tables turn. Theodosius comes, comes along and now it's like no more paganism, no more anything. Follow this Nicene creed or else. And I'm just, I, I look back at that little, like little threshold of 50, 60 years between Constantine and Theodosius. And I'm like, I think they were holding I think they were fine during that time. I don't see why they had to change mm. that. It wasn't TikTok. That's what you're saying. Like it, it was right. not as bad as TikTok. Yeah, TikTok didn't. You don't need TikTok for all that. It's just yeah. people that are are free to worship their own thing, and I don't see a problem with that. Yeah, you know that that made sense. I don't know if that made sense or not. What do you guys think? I know we haven't heard from Shay in a while. Curious what you think. I was gonna say I think this, it's it raises an issue of the problem of social and cultural totality in that if there was a universal religion at the time of the Roman religion that was centered around the emperor, and then there was a moment of decay when there was pure splintering, then there was another moment of recentering around the figure of Christ. I mean, if that is the narrative you want to paint, then you have a question of 
well, was there a fundamental condition within the Roman religion that led to its splintering and that led to the possibility of the ascent of Christianity? And then can that same set of conditions arise again? And has it already arisen now? And then what will succeed Christianity, if anything at all? Or is there a, a set of moves that can be made to restore Christianity to a place that it had, let's say, God, even 300 years ago? I don't know. But I, I think that kind of question is seemingly being posed. Well, also, back then, people didn't have, obviously, the technology of something like TikTok to waste their time with, and they had a lot of busy work that they had to do around the house, farming. It was a very hard life, and by no means am I putting rose-colored glasses on about how people lived back then, as I know a lot of more reactionary people like to do, you know, especially on the internet in the comfort of their own homes, you know, think about, oh, it was so much better back then. But that's kind of the double-edged sword, though, because they're also addicted to 4chan, and they're addicted to all of these stimulating things. So, in a way, I can understand their point, too, that religion, what it does do is it brings people all into one room where they have something that unites them as opposed to separates them, which is happening today. So the question is, what exactly is going to be this new thing that's going to unite them? Personally, I mean, this may be, uh, this may be jumping over too far here, but maybe we're at the point right now with an unprecedented amount of technology that we've never experienced in all these hundreds of years, you know, that we know of, that maybe the next step would be something that would be as fantastical to us as the technology that we have today would have been to people in the Middle Ages, where maybe we can know what exactly all all this is about. And that's going to, I think, solve a lot of problems as well as create a lot of problems too. I don't know, that's kind of a side tangent. I don't want to dwell too much on that. But that I really see as kind of being the only way other than, you know, just like having a complete destruction of society at a certain point when somebody presses the wrong button and then we're back yeah. to square one. So I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. And then I want to go back to the initial subject. Well, this is interesting. That's sort of the Heideggerian idea of like only a god can save us, right? Where he kind of sees uh, epis epistemically like what, uh, you know, Western civilization, especially, but civilization generally going on this path of you know, increased, uh, increased skepticism, increased individualism, um, you know, increased alienation, which will culminate in pure nihilism. And then some sort of renewed way of being in the world will emerge, which he sees, you know, hence only a God can save us as like almost comparable to a new, a new incarnation or a new, like, emergence of, of Christianity, a similar kind of idea to William Butler Yeats's poem, The Second Coming, right? Like, you know something like you know this can't go on forever something's gonna happen what is it like <laughs> two more know. weeks um, two more weeks yeah it's like that oh yes shay yeah i was no, just gonna ahead. say i think there's something very comparable there with the oft belabored phrase that goes around in political circles to the end of history right that's kind of what has happened just endless one thing after another no unification yeah, and it reminds me that there's that Louis C.K. bit where he's like, oh, what did the people in B.C. think? Like, oh, it's year five, now it's year four, now it's year three. What's going to happen? <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, to your point, the end of history, at least as kind of presented by Francis Fukuyama at the end of the Cold War, um, you know, rest in peace, Mikhail Gorbachev today. Uh, mm. 
Yeah, that's right. As completely. This, yes, yes. R.I.P. You know, as this triumph of the the secular Western capitalist democracies that would just you know be more freedom, more more liberalism, more wealth forever, um, has you know largely collapsed, and I think we're seeing um, people aren't happy living in this this secular liberal utopia even if you can you know go to a million different yoga classes and download a million different meditation apps in order to pursue your own spiritual journey people still seem to be deeply unhappy with this um and they're seeking out um this is where i come back to my point about about organized religion i think it's almost inevitable they're seeking out these these tribal identities um and in many cases they tend to be political um, so on the left, you have a, you know, purportedly secular uh, social justice cult that's as dogmatic or more so than the Roman Catholic Church. And it doesn't wait centuries between councils. You know, it makes its uh, ex cathedra proclamations. Uh, it seems like every two weeks there's something new. Um, and then even on the right, you can see these political cults forming. Um, it's a little harder to see because in many ways, uh, American evangelicalism has lashed itself to the Trump cult. But if you go back to 2015 and 2016 to the early primaries, um, you know, and you go beyond just people who self-identify as evangelical, the less you went to church, the more likely you were to vote Trump in the primaries. The people who went to church every Sunday all voted for Cruz in the primaries. Yeah. Mm. Well, Neil, you have a bit of experience here. Trump was becoming a, Trump was becoming a substitute for their lost religion, essentially. Hmm. Well, Neil, I was I wonder, can you comment a little bit on that? Because this was like your crew, right? Like these are the people that you were hanging out with, going to church, and uh, and they were voting heavily for Trump. Oh, for sure. I mean, I don't, I don't know what you want me to say. I mean, I, he, what he said is pretty much correct. Is that once Trump got the, the got that uh, got that torch for the evangelicals, he still has it right now. I mean, he's not. That's that's their guy, you know. But um, I want I do have a something I want to ask. I mean, how, I don't know how we measure happiness now compared to like some other century before, as in like individualism versus a theocracy. I, it's I, for me, it's hard to get to how do we how do we measure that? How do we know that today everyone's not happy compared to another century? You, you know what I mean? Like, what what is your way of what's your methodology of trying to of getting to that thing? Well, I mean, I'll quibble slightly with the use of the term theocracy. Theocracies are incredibly rare in the Christian West. Um, the only real examples that come to mind are the papal states in central Italy, um, which the Pope rules as monarch, and a few small, like, prince-bishopric states in the Holy Roman Empire. Essentially, in, in the rest of the realm, you have the separation of church and state, which is why you can have, you know, in the 1100s, Thomas Becket excommunicating King Henry II and being murdered, and then King Henry having to go and be lashed by the the priests in in uh, repentance, which you know I think is the ideal model of church state relations. But uh, moving on, I think that um, I think that to talk about happiness, I'm going to invoke G.K. Chesterton again. Uh, he has this great uh, illustration where he says, "Imagine you have an island in the middle of the sea. You know, maybe." 30 feet across and you put 10 children on this island and there's a big fence around the, uh, there's a big fence around the edge. Um, and then, you know, it's a hundred foot drop down to, to rocks that'll kill you. Um, 
as long as that fence is there, the children can play on this island. They can play as rough as they want. They can run around and tackle each other and roll around in the grass and, you know, close their eyes and play Marco Polo or whatever they want. You take that fence away and you come back and you will find those children all cowering in the center of the island. Um, because without the wall, they have less freedom. Without those, those barriers erected, they actually can't be free. Um, so what you you're know, saying so, is that we have to build the wall. I think we have to build the wall, yeah. I'm, I would add to that, and I would say I think most religion, and I would go so far as to say philosophy too, uh, at least for some people that conflate philosophy and religion, like the Stoics, or like maybe Kant and Hegel would do that too, uh, maybe to a lesser degree. But all of that is an attempt to circumscribe the limits of reason and thereby to circumscribe the limits of practice so that we can live in a world fruitfully and healthily with an awareness of what we cannot do and so that we do not tread on what we cannot do and thereby do not kill ourselves. So I think you could radicalize that and say that in some sense, all theory, perhaps with re religion at its apex, is aiming at just that. Um, I also wanted to say something uh, to add to, Neil, your question about uh, how we're judging metrics of freedom. In the modern period, uh, we see these writers, both in literature, Chesterton is one of them, and in sociology, point out for the first time in intellectual history that there's a disconnect between what people take themselves to be doing and what they see society doing. Durkheim, for instance, christens this anime. So this is a moral notion that uh, what it is to act rightly in the world has no universal social consensus. And so there's not really a judge of happiness there, but it is a judge of what it is to be in the world as a free agent. And this only becomes an outstanding social problem with the beginning of the secular age, so to speak. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of a Sumerian tablet that's in a museum somewhere. I really can't say which where, where it is or not, but I remember reading the translation of it and it was basically a guy, a pre, I think it was a priest, somebody complaining about society and how it words. Everyone's so degenerate. Everything. That's so the bad. earliest. I think that's the earliest written record we have. Yeah. Yeah. So you know what I'm talking about then. Okay. But so when you look at that, don't you think this is just sort of a recurring theme? That every generation well, feels. You, usually, Neil, I would be with you. I'm usually the guy who says exactly what you're saying right now. That you people are complaining too much. What do you mean, you people? But anyway, how I would, how I would uh, give the devil his due about that is to say that maybe that was the quote-unquote degenerate time of that particular epoch. And then, you know, the strong men came and then the weak men came that goes on and on, on, meaning they weren't wrong and neither were certain people not wrong when they were complaining. They were not wrong about their maybe particular time. And then that time went away and like a new time started and so on. Could that be an explanation that both justifies what you're saying? And at the same time, I, I don't know. It's possible. But I just when I, when I see something like that and it's that old, it just makes me wonder if that's how we 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 just have that sort of in us to feel that way about our society. It gives us that drive. All the time, though, or no? Maybe. Like, would, would you say that there's... Okay, for example, would there have been a certain time where people would have been a lot more, I don't know, pietous, building churches, stuff like that? Would they then say, oh, kids today, you know, in comparison to... I don't know. I don't know if they would. That's what I'm trying I think to think it's... I do think it's telling that we're incapable with all our technology and wealth of building anything as beautiful as a medieval Gothic cathedral. I agree. I, I definitely agree with that. The way, the, especially when you get to 
Renaissance, early Renaissance time. Like that is just the beauty. That's the 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 climax of of uh, art, basically. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I would say that with medieval uh, gothic, I was watching this great uh, series recently. Uh, I don't remember the professor's name. I'm going to look him up. It's from the teaching company. Uh, he had a really nice mustache, and he always wore a really nice tie every episode. But he uh, took us on the tour of all these different medieval cities with the walls and with these beautiful cathedrals there. And there were certain cathedrals that were built just by the people themselves there. Like, these were not the commissions of kings. These were just people who wanted to volunteer their time and effort into that. And you also had hospitals, and you had all these things that would be considered to be very socially aware things, things to help out the pilgrims that were traveling through the city. And so all these things I definitely respect. The only problem is that those are the good things that I know about that time. I don't know the bad. I don't know how the average Joe that was living at that time, how exactly they were being, you know, how much their human rights were being violated. And I know there are people say, well, that doesn't matter. At least the whole society was cohesive or whatever. But still, I can't really talk about the past without this giant gap in all of our knowledge. Like anything I think that's older than 200 or 300 years old, we know so little about it, even with the amount of text that we have. We just don't know. We just don't know how exactly a lot of these people lived. So... They I know. As, yeah. They were definitely weren't as nourished as we are today. They didn't wear as clean as we are today. They probably didn't have heat and and cooling systems like we have today. There's a lot of that stuff, but I I mean we're used to that now, so I don't know. No, I can give you I can give you the closest example. So profit a man if he gains the whole world. I mean that's that's actually a really good point. As far hmm. as from a Christian standpoint, I I would have to agree with you on that. From a Christian standpoint, they're more lined up with the Stoics, where like the the early Stoic Diogenes would just live on a on some hay on the ground with some, hmm. not even in a house. Well, but to, but to get, but I mean, but to like, to look at the other side of it, like I am extremely glad. And I think that it's a, I think that it's a positive thing from a Christian perspective. And I think it's a, a God honoring thing that, um, you know, humans were meant to extend the, the garden, the cultivated place um, out into the rest of creation um, to rule the earth and to to subdue it, and I think that you know advances in in medicine and technology that have resulted just in the last century uh, in you know uh, infant mortality rates dropping precipitously by historical standards, and in um, the vast majority of the world not living in subsistence level poverty for the first time in human history are incredibly positive um, are incredibly positive developments. I do have this little bit of an apocalyptic strain where I think that all of this was in some sense inevitable from the minute that, that Christ began his ministry. Um, and you can see that in his prophetic utterances. I think it would be possible for someone who wasn't a Christian to think that um, some of Christ's prophetic utterances about, you know, these things must come. Um, and the idea of the, the, uh, uh, and kind of later Christian ideas about the Antichrist or the the man of lawlessness, which I take more to be a type than an individual, sort of like Nietzsche's last man type thing. But um, I think there's a sense in which you could argue, even from a secular point of view, that, that Christ's ministry sets off this uh, cultural process or injects this enzyme into history that 
has a wide variety of effects, some good and some bad, and that ultimately reaches its culmination in some kind of crisis, uh, at which point humanity, by our definition of it, I, uh, ceases to exist or becomes something else. In terms and I don't of... Think that, yeah, I, no, yeah and I think that's totally compatible with, with Christianity or with a secular point of view. Well, in terms of it being compatible with not a secular point of view, but not just with Christianity, possibly with something that came before or was during the time of Christianity, or maybe like a Christian heresy. I don't know, Neil, would there be examples of things that have occurred through the history of religion and philosophy that would have similar predictions of what is going on right now because before we were talking about people have all these different choices of what to go with why specifically would they go with christianity if there may be certain other things that also tell a similar story about where we are right now i don't know if any of this kind of stuff was as predicted by other sects other religions as it was by christianity so you're more of an expert on this than i am so i don't know uh, you tell me um, not really. I think they're all they all claim make claims that they can draw and, and they can um, interpret their scripture in any way that says, hey, I mean, look, this says this. It's ambiguous, but it meant this. And this is the time we're in. I mean, you, you even have um, sibling oracles. Even This is just this is Christianity. You got some sibling oracles that are later on that talk about, you know, Muhammad is Baphomet and you know, wearing a turban is the mark of the beast. So that idea changes over time. Not saying that they're today it couldn't when maybe we are in the end times i'm saying i know i can't know that for sure I'm not saying we aren't but i'm saying i think depending on what religion you're in or what what, what uh sect of christianity you're in they're all going to make those claims so it's i that's why i, I don't know what do, what do you guys think about that actually i mean i'm certainly yeah. encouraged by the fact that every generation of christians has to some degree or another thought they were living in the end times right <laughs> it's definitely true exactly. never never hurts to be prepared that's that's what i say I know. Uh, uh, Shay, uh, keep keep your wick trimmed and your lamp full, right? Yes, exactly. Shay, uh, what say you? Yeah, I, no, I was going to say the exact same thing, but I was going to tie it back also to the fact that this is where part of my skepticism about religion comes from. Because when you see these claims repeated again and again that never come true, at least for me, uh, you have to ask, well, what is the merit in those claims, and what is the merit in uh, a system, an ideological system that makes those claims possible? Well, what I'll say is I don't think that the book of Revelation is necessarily intended to provide a roadmap for predicting the future end of the world so much as it is setting out a pattern that repeats and intensifies itself over time um, and will eventually reach some sort of culmination. But it's hard to tell where that culmination is if it repeats and intensifies itself every time. Like just from our perspective, there's no way to tell when it's reached its apex. But, you know, the beast, the beast portrayed in, in Revelation is pretty clearly Nero, yeah. given the, um, well, it, you know, the, the kind of, uh, uh, the numerology. what's the word for? The gematria. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, yeah, the number word. seems to be his name. Um, he well, has it changes. It changes to 616, yeah. depending on the language, which matches yeah. up his, only his name twice. The, the yeah, exactly. Somebody else is like zero. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, he has a wound. He appears to have a wound first, that's healed. Yeah. By the way, the first beast, because Nero was the second beast. The first beast, they say, they gave, he had rule. He had uh, the power to rule for forty-two months. If we look at the first twelve Roman emperors, 
Caligula had exactly 42 months to rule. Caligula yeah. was one of the worst. He was a, he was a mo- have you ever heard of Philo? And Philo, Philo tells oh, a story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Philo tells a story about Caligula coming to uh, uh, Jerusalem, trying to put up a statue of himself naked in the, in the temple. And then he's yeah. like forcing all the Jews in Alexandria to bow down and kiss him and, and, wow. and, and worship him as, as Zeus, basically. And that, it was that he's the he was the first beast, clearly. Wow. But, um, Gr- great movie, by the way. Oh, yeah. And so, another thing was about, about the um, the apocalypse thing, because this, this could backfire. The Pope Sylvester in the year 1000, you guys can look this up, <laughs> he called it. He said, it's been a thousand years, guys. The thousand year reign is over, like Revelation says. We have 30 years left. From now until 30, when, when Jesus was crucified, so we have 30 years left. Everyone get ready. There was craziness happening in Rome. All over Europe, people were losing it, and nothing happened. So that could backfire. I think you're I think you're right about that. I don't think we should take the, the scriptures in Revelation and try to put end dates on it because that's just yeah. gonna that date's gonna come along. If it doesn't happen, then people are gonna be like, What? You know what I mean? In one of his books, interestingly, one of his early books, Tom Holland actually makes the argument that the year one thousand not being the apocalypse was the event that birthed the high middle ages, where really? yeah, you know, after after centuries of kind of um uh after centuries of kind of malaise that they realized the apocalypse was not uh, imminent and sort of set about building this, this great civilization. But yeah, I think that, I think that in Nero, the reason the beast is Nero is not because necessarily they thought that Nero was going to um, literally return from the dead. Although that was like a trope that was being passed around at the time. I think that it's because in Nero, some force within history reached, uh, he, he almost functions as this archetype where yeah. You have this emperor who is not only the emperor, um, kind of the all-powerful autocratic ruler of this empire. He also wants to perform lyre concerts. Um, he also wants to uh, act on the stage. He's, and he's, he was also dressing up as a woman, getting banged by his slave. Yeah, he he wants to. He wants exactly. He wants to have uh, you know have gay weddings killed in the middle of Rome. Killed his mom. Yeah, killed his killed yes. his mom. Um, uh, wow. Actually, he he'd have a, a he'd have a Netflix series by now if he was alive. Advertised for a reward for any surgeon who could turn um, his favorite male slave, who he bought because he looked like the wife, the pregnant wife he kicked to death. Anyone who could turn this male slave into a woman uh, genitally, which I think he did, um, he successfully did it too. I'm not mistaken. Maybe. And yeah. then also he uh, he's competing in the Olympics. So this is like if not if someone <laughs> if the same person was the president you know, was was on a stadium tour and had the top charting album in the country, was the quarterback for the New England Patriots, and was starring in the summer's biggest blockbuster film. And like, this is a, a level of, of megalomania and performance art as a politician that has not been equaled since. And, and I, but I think that we see that pattern repeat itself. I mean, we we just had a reality TV star as our president. Right. Um, and that's that echo. That's that pattern repeating itself. But what's so crazy about Nero too is this whole idea of divine justice, where he he tries to sack the Temple of Jerusalem by sending in his procurator Jesseus Florus. He goes in there, he robs the temple, and he successfully pulls it off. And the uh, the rebels in Judea start throwing; they're fighting back. They start slinging arrows at the legions, and the war breaks out. So Nero starts off this war, this Jewish war. It's a seven year war too, which is weird because Revelation has seven seven years of. Uh, or whatever so there's like a there's like a layer there but anyways he starts off the war and by the time the war is over by the time jerusalem falls 
he's no longer the emperor. He's gone. So he's yeah, a part Vespasian by that time. Yeah, Vespasian. And Titus. Yeah, Titus. Titus, Titus commanding up, right. And um, but what's in, what's crazy about that is like Nero ends up getting his own justice for all the stuff he does during this time period where people actually think, according to Suetonius, according to Tacitus, according to Josephus, this is they they look up in the sky and they saw armies in the sky fighting over this. This was a war in heaven too, according to all the writers. So I don't know, uh, you can take that or leave it, but that's what, you know, it's pretty crazy if you think about it. Yeah, I always lean on the UFOs instead of it being spectral, you know, like heavenly beings, but that's just me. I'm crazy like that. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. When it comes to this outpouring of creativity that we were just talking about in relation to the apocalypse is not happening, let's improve what we have here on Earth. Some would say that this tendency to want to burst out forth it's very much like a nero it's very much like a uh trump it's very much like a uh luciferian kind of energy where and even rudolf steiner had both like lucifer and Aramon. Aramon defined as this very solidifying force something very dry something very earthy while Lucifer was more of like this very liquid, you know, yearning for the sky type of, you know, in this creative frenzy type of force. And so I think I could be mistaken, Grace, and please let me know. I think there was always this kind of uh, uh, wagging of the uh, finger towards any of these tendencies to want to aspire to this Luciferian quality to create all of this different art while at the same time we also had cathedrals and we had all these beautiful spires with the crosses and all that but do you see what i'm trying to get at here that there was an emphasis within christianity of rejecting a lot of these very beautiful things as well and not wanting to flaunt one's talents and being able to create all these beautiful magnificent structures even though they were created too but do you see what i mean like i'm tr I think that there is some kind of a uh, some kind of a being torn asunder here. I don't know. I could be mistaken about that, but uh, there were monks who did not like the glitz and the glamour, who flagellated themselves, who you know had this weird ass haircut, you know, with the bald spot over here. So there was that, but then there were also the very beautiful cathedrals and the paintings. And in the Renaissance, I don't think it's a coincidence that when we had a lot more of those paintings and sculptures, we also had the return of the old gods. We had the return of all of this, uh, all this paganism. So I don't know. What do you make of this uh, dichotomy over here? So this is interesting. Uh, what Neil was, Neil was saying earlier is talking about um, Constantine and, and Theodosius. And one thing that's really fascinating is you actually don't see the development of Christian monasticism um, until Constantine uh, legalizes Christianity. At this point, it becomes, you know, politically, uh, politically advantageous to convert to Christianity and you start seeing that critical mass forming. But that's the same time that you see people like Antony of Egypt saying, you know, well, F all this, I'm going to go live in a cave in the desert and, and do combat with the devil. Um, there's a there's an essay about this uh, by a, an Eastern Orthodox scholar named George Florovsky. It's called Empire and Desert Antinomies of Christian History. Desert fire. Um, yeah, exactly. But that's the point is that the the birth of the Christian empire is also the birth of the Christian monastic movement. Uh, these two things develop in tandem. 
And I think you need both of these things. You know, if we're talking about uh, established religion or established Christianity specifically as this kind of, uh, you know, purely uh, as this force that kind of imposes conformity and stagnation, then that's not what I am in favor of. But I don't think, thankfully, that that's the Christianity that we have. I think that like I said, there's these paradoxes at the heart of it that form this kind of nuclear reactor core of Christianity and that you keep seeing those play themselves out over the years. Um, I think the problem today is that for the past 500 years or so, the reactor's been melting down a bit and uh, <laughs> well, you know, the, the radiation looks very pretty in the air, but uh, it's not going to be good for us. <laughs> Well, I I, I want to push it. I want to push it one step further, and I want to get Shay's take on this as well. So there's this idea in the Kabbalah, because I know that we had Hotep Sophia in the chat. Shout out to Hotep Sophia, an OG of BTR history, and everybody subscribe by the way, and Patreon.com/slash Break the Rules. And lastly, Sneed those super chats if you want to support the show. Add a like, and don't forget to click the bell. Anyway, uh, when it comes to the Kabbalah, they have this notion of egoism and converting the egoism into altruism, where they consider everything that people engage in on a daily basis uh, to the extent of even the love that you would experience between you know you and your wife, let's say, that that is all receiving. You're receiving pleasure. You're receiving visual pleasure from seeing the beautiful sculptures or the cathedrals. You're receiving sensory pleasure from whatever you happen to smell that's nice. Or See, the point that I'm getting to here is that ultimately everything that we are receiving that gives us certain pleasure keeps us attached to this level of reality. So in terms of Maya, that's found in Hinduism and in Buddhism, the idea would be to transcend that particular illusion that you're in, where you think, well, this is the only pleasure that I know of. I don't want to go beyond that. And as a result, you end up being stuck within that cycle. So I know that this diverts further away from Christianity, but it is an interesting thought to me, the idea that all of this beauty Without it, we wouldn't really be able to function. We would just be depressed all the time. But with this beauty, we're kind of still stuck in, you know, all of these very minor lusts, even the eating of meat, you know, the killing of these poor animals in order to sustain ourselves. You know, like, I, you know, I've seen the cow recently in the farm, and it's like, that cow's, you know, it's going to become a beef patty one day, and here it is, you know, I'm petting it, I'm looking at its eyes. It's like, oh, my God, like, that's, you know, like, all of these things that we're stuck in right now, in Christianity doesn't really have that much to say about uh, meat from what I understand. I mean, not even the kosher laws are set there. But in general, it seems like with Christianity, people do have this sensual enjoyment still in their lives. But if we really like try and imagine that all of that is also in a way a minor indulgence, and that ultimately there may be a way to transcend beyond that, as I think a lot of monks have done in various kinds of religions, what is that pointing us to? What other realities are there for us to experience that maybe monks of various faiths, you know, be it Buddhist, be it Christian, Orthodox, whatever, they've been able to, yeah, or Neoplatonists, that they were able to experience that. So that's, I want to push this into that level right now. So curious what you think, but let's start with Shay. Uh, uh, Yeah, let me know what you think. 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's really interesting things to be said about the way monasticism is able to cultivate a sustained degree of intellectual effort. I mean, the we would not have most texts we have today if it were not for the medieval monastics. Uh, we also would likely not have a lot of the I would say more intense uh, spirituality without the monastics, the rule of St. Benedict, for instance, I think, of course, it wouldn't exist at all. But aside from that, in terms of the concrete experiences that are possible, I can't really offer anything more than like a historical survey, because I do know that, for instances, in Islam, I don't know if they're monastic, but there's like the idea of the dervish. Mm, Yeah, the Sufis, for instance, um, and they're supposed to achieve some kind of uh, mystical uh, and at the same time bodily ascent as a consequence of the unity of body and mind. So there's supposed to be something to that uh, in Christianity. Again, to mention the rule of St. Benedict, there is supposed to be something to uh, submitting to the rule, maintaining your vows, that it is supposed to uh, enable a kind of subordination of the ego to the cloister. So there's something to that, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and also, let's not forget the conversation we had before about sexual transmutation. That seems to be one that people kind of pass by. No, absolutely. I mean, uh, in, God, I believe it's Teresa of Avila, she talks about what she calls spiritual delights when she's meditating. And according to what scholars know today of those, they're just orgasms. Now, of course, these are inspired by meditation on God. But now, if this is possible in the privacy of a cloister, then I think you have to ask a question as to whether or not divinity, at least as it is conceived in the psyche, is capable of eliciting that kind of thing. And clearly, based on her writings, it is. So, there is clearly something potent and powerful there that uh, has yet to be broadcast to the rest of society, if it's possible at all. Uh, there's a good argument to say it's not, that it has to uh, be definitely and determinately separated from the rest of society. Anybody who's, yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, this is why I'm, this is why I'm gonna, gonna push, you know, conti- like, this is, this is kind of the point I made originally, but this is why I'm gonna keep kind of uh, pushing in favor of an organized religion rather than this idea of let's skim off the cream of the monastic traditions across the world. Um, Because I think that only an organized religion gives you this sense of solidarity up and down the scale. Um, So Teresa of Avila is a saint who was able to spend all this time uh, in contemplation and to have these, um, you know, to have these amazing kind of ecstatic visions uh, but Mother Teresa is also a saint who writes very movingly in her her diaries about how for, I think, for about 40 years, um, she didn't, she never felt the presence of God in her life. Um, and for that entire time, she was going out and, and binding up the wounds of people dying of leprosy um, and just doing incredibly miserable work, listening to people scream as they're dying of, of horribly painful diseases. Um, and, you know, she's a saint. And then you have people who are just kind of simple farmers or maybe, you know, even in modern times, office workers who, uh, don't necessarily have time to spend hours in meditation and contemplation or to, and maybe don't have the intellect to read deep and profound, uh, mystical writings and theological books, but who, do their best to love their neighbor and to make it to to church and um, to live a good life and believe uh, and try to try to believe rightly in so far as their their intellect uh, can grasp these these vast concepts. 
And yeah, I think that, that an organized religion, um, especially organized Christianity, can provide for all those people and meet them where they are. Um, because in Christianity, this is what St. Augustine says in Confessions during his Neoplatonic period. He says in Neoplatonism, um, you know, the, the, the onus is on you to ascend to truth. And he says, I mean, like, to, to give Neoplatonism its, its due, uh, Augustine says, from the Neoplatonists, I got most of what I found in Christianity. But what I didn't get is that the, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, what I didn't get is this idea that, you know, I didn't have to ascend to the form of the good. The form of the good came down and was born in a, in a cave and met us. Um, and because of that... Uh, all of humanity from the the poorest and most servile to the the most brilliant and enlightened is is ennobled and is um blessed that's uh that's very interesting grayson and part of me agrees with what you're saying but to push back the other part of me i guess is the angel and devil on one shoulder wants to push back by saying that is the journey that a person on something where they're again if we i know that christians don't believe in reincarnation but if we were to look at people who are born as paraplegics or have some kind of a horrible situation where they're not really able to live like a, a human being usually lives and that is that is kind of it for them there's no other there's no other way of going about it for me personally that's one of the hardest things of being able to accept that human beings would only have one go of it and some people just end up being just screwed up, just completely screwed, whether it's because of bad circumstances or because of some weird genetic thing that happened, you know, chemicals in the water, whatever. So if we then take a step back and say, well, maybe not, maybe they're and I know that Christians don't believe it, but if we you go with me on this road for a second, if there is reincarnation, if there is other another experience that a person can have over time then is there a merit to over time being able to understand something as opposed to just having i guess you could say for lack of a better word blind faith because if there is somebody out there who was convinced to do something because if they don't do it then they're going to go into a pit of fire i'm not sure if that is as noble as somebody who has been tested by temptation and understands more like what exactly evil is what does it mean to hurt somebody what does it feel like when somebody is hurt when you are hurt having all these various experiences and that i think is something where a person needs to confront evil and confront what exactly is good and what exactly is bad as opposed to just always being the you know the lamb that's enclosed within the uh, guarded wall of the you know guarded field so that would be the other take, saying that the people who do end up achieving some kind of level of understanding, it may be something that everybody should aspire to, again, assuming there is reincarnation, to try and get to that level. Because if not, what are you really doing? Like, what are you here for? Why aren't you with the Godhead already if you, you know, like, what is the point of this entire journey then, if not to understand? That would be, that would be the retort. And I don't know what you guys think. Uh, I guess before Grayson answers, if there's anything that uh, Neil uh, or Shay, if, if you guys have anything to add to that. 
I could I could throw I could throw something real quick. Um, it reminds me of the Greeks, and um, the, there's actually the New Testament alludes to this too, where they have this agnoston theon, uh, the unknowable or unknown God. They're just like, just in case there's a God that we haven't figured it out yet, we're looking for you. Like, and almost it almost is almost like a, I almost wonder if that's like a. There's, like, what, what's wrong with that? Like, if you if you you're, you're admitting, okay, we don't know if there's a god, we don't know who it is. Is it Zeus? Is it Yahweh? Who is it? So why don't we just say, pray to the unknown god? And then Paul Paul notices this thing, and he's like, you guys are looking for. The, he's right here. It's the Christ. But I just think it's that concept of like trying to get to it and not knowing it. I think that's there's something something interesting about that. And um, I forgot what else I was going to say. Said, oh yeah, as far as the reincarnation thing. The Neoplatonists definitely have this idea of a transmigration of the soul, which comes from Pythagoras. And I almost wonder, because I know, I know a lot of the a lot of the theology of the early Christians is borrowing a little bit from the Middle Platonists, I think, um, especially Philo. But there's this idea of, of John the Baptist being Elijah. And I almost wonder, is that are they getting at some sort of transmigration of the soul in the text? I, w- I wonder what you guys think about that. Well, I think I uh, that briefly, I mean, there, when Jesus said, who do you think I am, right? People would say, you are Elijah, you are this prophet, you are that. But uh, one other thing I wanted to add in response to Grayson, what you had said was, um, I do think that this notion of the incarnation and of the word made flesh is the most distinguishing feature of Christianity among all the world religions, and perhaps to a lesser extent Islam as well, because they have a similar notion with the Quran. Uh, but aside from that, it doesn't exist anywhere else in the world, as far as I know. So I do think there is something there that uh, has Ju- to be Judaism, helped. too, by the way. In Judaism, they have, they have the- Hermes. You do have Hermes in the Hermetica. And this is right in the first century mm. BC, first century AD, where he's literally called the word, the logos. It's in the, it's in the Hermetica text. Is it, is it he the word turned flesh, though? I don't know if they say it that, like that. But you, he is the logo. Like that logos thing is already out there. But I guess I guess you are right that. They don't call low. He's not the word turn flat. He's just a god. He's just like in yeah. space somewhere. So yeah, there's um, Heraclitus deals with the logos as well, and he says that the logos sort of can and cannot be called Zeus. Um, he says it yeah. sort of resists being called Zeus, but it's the closest thing he can identify it as. And Paul actually in the in the Areopagus discourse you quoted earlier with the unknown god, he um, he cites two different uh, Greek. Greek poems uh, that are hymns to Zeus. Uh, for, uh, in him we live and move and have our being, and for we are all his children are the lines he cites. And both of those are referencing Zeus and sort of this, this kind of pantheistic conception of Zeus that had come to, to predominate in Athens. Um, but he's applying it to, um, to Jesus Christ. One other thing I would add uh, before uh, Grayson, because uh, I want you to address the thing that I was talking about earlier regarding reincarnation and the people who are born with all these uh, problems and so on, is there is this idea that just because a person is uh, more innocent of what exactly is going on, that they're good. But if they were to learn evil and not really understand it, they're liable to do a lot of evil. I mean, we've seen, for example, back in... Uh, uh, Russia, you know, back in my uh, ancestors' experience of the uh, pogroms there in uh, Imperial Russia, you had people who you could say, you know, they were very innocent Christian people, they were pietists, they went to church, but as soon as the church commanded them to do something evil, they did it. And in that sense, how are they, some, 
you know, how are they people who can understand good and evil, and where is the growth there? Isn't it something much more, let's see, uh, connected to this whole idea of existence that you do grow, that you do learn certain lessons, which is why I think that that learning of lessons would be extended over a longer period of existence than just this one. But again, that's just me. I don't know, Grayson, what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, so just to answer the, the Elijah thing quickly, um, the best explanation I've heard for those passages, which are rather mysterious, uh, is that when when he said to come, when John the Baptist said to come, the spirit and power of Elijah, that's referring to the idea that Elijah is functioning as John the Baptist's heavenly patron. John the Baptist, you know, famously does not die. He's taken to heaven on a chariot, one of two human beings. Uh, and, and, you know, if you look at the cosmology that was shared by ancient Israel and by the, uh, the, the nations surrounding them at that time, there was a divine council of, of gods or, you know, you would call them angels in the, the Hebrew conception. So essentially what happens there is Enoch and Elijah are elevated to this divine council as human beings, uh, which, you know, Christians believe is the, the destiny of all humans. That's, that's what theosis means. Um, but the idea there is that Elijah is coming again through John the Baptist in the sense that he is functioning through him and empowering him as his heavenly patron. Um, to your point about reincarnation, I'm not, I, I, I mean, I'm not a fan of the concept generally, but I understand what you're saying about people who might be born with deformities. And what I would say with that is that um, your concern there is simply above my pay grade. Uh, it's something where I... I truly don't understand why people are born into the different circumstances they're born into um, and why they have the different life experiences they have. Um, you know, for example, you could have someone whose intellect is the means by which they, they come to know God. Um, someone who, you know, sits down and reads uh, T.S. Eliot's four quartets and, and has the, the brain power to engage with those uh, and the aesthetic sense to engage with those on a very deep level and comes away from them weeping and decides he's going to become a Christian based on that. Um, and then you could have someone who reads those and they're gibberish to him and he walks away with, with no insight from that. But you could also have someone whose intellect to them is a stumbling block who, you know, reads Christopher Hitchens and becomes this, uh, you know, incredibly insufferable Reddit atheist. But that's not um, uh, wisdom. That's the difference that I would say between wisdom and intelligence. Uh, I mean, no, sorry, between wisdom and just like book smarts, because you can know a lot of information. You can be knowledgeable about certain facts and figures. I'm sure we know many people like that who can cite all kinds of various things. I mean, uh, Going to university, there's a lot of people like that who know mm -hmm. what to say at the right time, when to say it, but in a way that's very robotic, and it's not really something that they take to heart. The difference, mm -hmm. I'd say, is that you could have somebody who grew up in a peasant village or whatever who is mm -hmm. generally wise, and yeah. I bet that if they were to, let's say, attend a class and like take some you know books like early on in their childhood maybe they would have been able to be like an Anton Chekhov, whose father was a uh, Russian serf. So sure. the, po the point that I'm saying here is that I think that there is this idea of wisdom, which should be emphasized as opposed to just uh, learning a bunch of factoids. And I want to make sure that we maintain a difference there. And then the question is, would we have people who are otherwise 
not smart, who are not wise, who are nevertheless uh, heavenly inspired, or is wisdom some kind of quality? I know it's kind of ephemeral when I'm saying, like, what is wisdom? How can we grab wisdom and, you know, hold it? But would you say that there is wisdom? Uh, that Would you say that people have wisdom who may not necessarily have the same kind of holy understanding? And you can have people with this holy understanding who do not possess wisdom. No, I would absolutely say so, but it's going to depend on what the, the referent of wisdom is. I mean, you talk about philosophy, that's love of wisdom. You could talk about theosophy, that's God wisdom. Of course, that now has an esoteric connotation. But uh, then you could talk about uh, what uh, Balthazar Gracian calls the wisdom of the world or the art of worldly wisdom. So that's like what we would call like Machiavellianism, knowing how people work. So then those are different kinds of intuitive knowledges. Now, if we're talking about a particularly divine wisdom, uh, then it, it you really have to ask, well, are we talking about like uh, Aquinas's different methods of exegesis of the Bible and the wisdom to switch between those? Are we talking about like the wisdom to know Lurianic yeah. Kabbalah? But but you're but you're see you're splitting them up, and this is something that actually it's good that you're splitting them up because this is something that I notice in today's uh, kind of cult of specialization where you don't have a lot of holistics, you have a lot of specialists. While back, let's say, if we're talking about like certain intellectuals that would have come out from, I don't know, the British Empire or whatever, you've noticed that there are a lot of people, like even people who are in the clergy, people who were, you know, like you would have somebody who was in the Church of England who in the spare time invented something that now we use all the time, you know? Like you would have these people who are just genuinely interested in how various things work, how everything comes together, and they have a certain cleverness about them where I can't really say that it's right to just completely separate all of these. In general, I think somebody who is able to figure something out about uh, life in one sense, they'll be able to figure something out about the Luriata Kabbalah or whatever if they just spend enough time on it. Like that's something that I think curiosity, whatever you want to call it, that kind of quality, that is something that you could see in people and that is something that you don't see in other people. So going back to what Grayson was talking about earlier, my one pet peeve with always talking about, you know, like, blessed are, you know, I'm not going to be the person to say blessed are the stupid. You know, I'm going to be the one to say that there are various societies today where they have very harsh punishments for people who commit, uh, you know, very, you know, petty crimes or stealing or whatever, you know, they chop your hand off. And I don't think people who live in those societies are necessarily wise when they don't commit those crimes. I think they don't commit those crimes because they don't want their hand to be chopped off, as opposed to knowing that if I commit this crime, it's going to affect badly, you know, the life of this particular person. And just something that comes second nature, as opposed to it being just like this top-down corporal punishment. And that would be kind of my biggest pet peeve with organized religion, because if people are only doing something because somebody told them to do this, I don't know if wisdom is being cultivated as much as it can. And I don't know whether this is just an 80-20 thing, or more of like like a 99 and 0 0.01 thing. But I don't know. That's, that's the big question for me here, whether we can get out of that, whether we're always going to be within that state. So I know what you guys think. And we're going to be concluding this pretty soon with like a, a final comments. But uh, yeah, let me know what you guys think about that before we do that. 
Well, I think what you're well, I think what you're getting to here is this idea that often comes up when you talk about kind of organized or traditional religion. And it's it's interesting because it's one of the areas where modern liberalism that's kind of, you know, the the, the water we're all swimming in, uh, you know, and influences us to degrees that we can't even even fathom, uh, clashes with that that organized for uh, or traditional religion idea. And that's the idea that something must be freely chosen in order to be valuable, right? Um, and this is, this is, you know, this clashes up against this because we want to say, I mean, even in our education system, we want to say, oh, we want the education system to teach you how to think, not what to think, that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Um, which I think we're seeing is uh, largely a pipe dream. Um <laughs> I oh, we don't have that, that many uh, people doing it, to be fair. We don't really have that many good teachers. We mostly have a bunch of summer enthusiasts, but that, you know, be that as may. Yeah, I think what we're seeing, I think what we're seeing with with liberalism as kind of the Enlightenment project uh, uh, rots on the, on the branch is that there really is no such thing as this, um, as this totally free choice or this um, total neutrality. And where this comes up is with religious families where they're, I mean, I've seen religious families who value this idea that the choice must be free to be valuable. So, uh, so deeply that they don't actually teach their children about their religion until they are a certain age. Um, you know, that is, I've heard of that happening, but it's a huge outlier. Like almost every family I know that's religious is going to, if they're from a Christian tradition that does this baptize their child at birth, and then um, teach them, you know, with with picture books and songs and so on from the time they're very, very small um, to be a Christian or to be whatever religion they're they're raising this child in. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I, I reject the idea that something has to be freely chosen in order to be valuable. Part of the reason I reject that is the idea of freely chosen is itself kind of without limit. Um, you know, you might say that we're all constrained to varying degrees by our material, um, our material conditions. So I don't, I, there are certain, there are certain things that I haven't made my mind up on, you know, theologically, but on a number of topics that I simply don't have time to sit down and spend hours and hours and days and months reading all the, the books on this topic. Um, because I have to work and provide for my, my family. Um, so that's one issue is that uh, you just, we just simply don't all have unlimited leisure to investigate these questions and to make free choices. We're all constrained by material uh, realities to one degree or another. Um, I can only be in one place at one time, for instance. Now you can transcend all of these material constraints by uh, you know uploading all of our consciousnesses into the metaverse and achieving the singularity but i don't want that um that sounds horrible uh <laughs> probably happy soon too mm. yeah well, well, well no the, the reason why i don't like this you idea guys of up enjoy it. i'll be here banging two rocks together yeah no the, the reason why i don't like that whole idea of us being in the vr scape is because we have this and i bring this up a lot on this on the show we have this 
artificial thing that's doing the calculations for us. This is the same reason. I know Neil and I disagree on this, but this is the same reason why I'm not a big fan of psychedelics because you have this outside thing that's doing something for you as opposed to you using your willpower to transmute whatever sexual energy you have in order to achieve something that you were not able to achieve before. And it's a step-by-step thing and people slip up and whatever. But the point is, is that I think people are capable of understanding something more than they have before while not necessarily having to go through the motions of only whatever it is that they were taught and this is something that takes time and it's not going to be something for everyone. And I completely understand, Grace, and your point about people all of a sudden thinking that they're like this, you know, you know, big mofo that's much better and holier than everybody, you know, than the peons, which is complete BS. Because, again, whatever level people end up going into, there's no telling how much more there is to discover there. So I think it's absolutely it's very I think it's very uh, egoistic to think that once you reach some kind of understanding, then now all of a sudden you're like the goat that's on top of uh, a couple of uh, a couple of barrels, and you think yourself so you know so highly. So I don't know. Uh, you're an old eternal, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So to let me sorry, let me just wrap up my point. Sure. That, that'll sure. be my like final word, I guess. Um, so we tend to view ourselves uh, like our true selves, whatever this this very individualistic weird idea we have. Uh, we tend to view our true selves as whatever is left over when you strip away all our unchosen obligations, and I think that's wrong. I think that your unchosen obligation, your obligations and roles, and especially your unchosen ones, are what make you who you are. Um, I think that my, you know, the fact that I'm the child of my parents is not something I chose, but it's a huge part of my identity. The fact that I am, you know, was born in the United States is shaped me in a lot of ways. The fact that, um, you know, I chose my wife, but this is an obligation that I don't, that I can't back out on. Um, I mean, I could under current laws, but um, in my kind of moral framework, I can't back out on that. And that's something, uh, an obligation that I'm tied to that changes, that, that affects who I am a lot. And that's, that really determines who I am. Sometimes I'll do this thing when I'm, I'm doing my morning prayers where I'll just list off all the different things I am, you know, brother, uncle, son, son-in-law, grandson, friend, motorist, uh, gym member, whatever, <laughs> like, and, and to me that, that forms an, an image of who I am, um, and I think that that's, that's valuable. Um, now, obviously, I don't want everyone to just fully define themselves by their, um, by their unchosen obligations. Uh, for example, I want people who were born in families that practice other religions to convert to my religion. Um, but I think that when we, I think that this goes to the heart of the, the main question that we began with, though, of, of organized religion versus um, individual spirituality, because I think when you approach spirituality, uh, which is really kind of the core of who we are from an individualistic framework, it relies on this idea that's a very modern and very aberrational thing historically that only that which is freely chosen, again, whatever freely chosen means can be valuable. And I don't think that's true. Interesting. Before going to uh, Gnostic or uh, Mr. Amazing, I want to add my uh, two cents on that. 
First of all, if reincarnation exists, then you did choose uh, where you were going to be born. And in fact, then I would say that every single thing within that model means that you have chosen everything that you have experienced because of the laws of karma. But that aside... I've done something really bad to have to do this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you are, you are a handsome devil, so don't even, don't even say another word. Anyway, uh, Neil, I'm curious what you have to say, and then, uh, and then Shay, and then we're going to finish off. Everybody subscribe right now. What are you people doing? Subscribe to Break the Rules right now. We're going to have a ton of great guests coming in soon. Great conversations. I really appreciate all of you being here. And if you want to support a little bit extra something, something, patreon.com slash break the rules. That always helps. Patreon exclusive streams coming soon. Give me a little bit of time. Thank you very much. Gnostic, go for it, my brother. Yeah, so one of the things that I noticed from, from studying the ancient world and ancient religions is, uh, for, for example, someone like Philo who talks about there's this procedure called the 49th evening. It's the it's the uh, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, and it's seven squared. And um, he brings up this comparison between this ancient rite of the Jews and how he noticed that the Pythagoreans are doing the same thing, wearing white and everything, singing hymns, um, eating food, bringing out bread and wine, and having and singing harmoniously, having an ecstatic religious experience. And Philo is looking at this and saying wow the greeks have a like plato's like another moses basically he's very holy pythagoras they're like they're pointing he's pointing this out and i think what happens when christianity comes along it recognizes these things and you get this marriage of greek wisdom and jewish piety and i think um when you look at these early we call them gnostics they're not really gnostics they're just christians they're just different christians different variety of christianity and i think that that's what religion is supposed to be doing getting to that ecstatic state of harmony with your fellow co-religious people, right? That's what I think people should be more trying to get to rather than ours is right and yours is wrong. So that's my that's my little final spiel and uh, you know, yeah. All right, the only two cents that I would add since I had two cents to Greece and I'm gonna add two cents to yours. It would be that I don't know with how much maybe better do five cents. Yeah, five say yeah, five cents. I don't know how, how much time people have in their day to do a lot of things where of that nature. Like I agree with Grayson that a lot of these things that determine who you are, you only have a limited amount of time with the education that your parents give you and your community gives you. You're gonna be absorbing a lot of that stuff. And a lot of kids are gonna be absorbing TikTok today and Xi Jinping, Winnie the Pooh, sitting there and you know, typing in the algorithms to make all the girls do those robot dances, you know, drive them nuts. But anyway, that's something we're going to have to work on uh, later. I do believe in there being a hierarchy and there being an elite, but I also believe in there being a responsible elite who would work on cultivating people, not through force, but through encouragement of good values that could then be virally spread along. I'm sure that there is a good way that that could be done, especially if people are all going to be zomboed out. I'm sure there's a, a way to reel them back in, reel them back in the fold. Anyway, lastly, but certainly not leastly, Mr. Amazing Shay, it is a great pleasure to have you here for the first time. Grayson, I think you're also here technically for the first time. There was that BTR segment on Twitter, where you were just like that, uh, you know, the head speaking. Uh, oh, I did the the Battle for Base stream. Oh, that's right. All right, yeah, Battle for... Okay, so it's not your first time here, but it is a great pleasure to see you here. 
so mr amazing you've got the last word take it away yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate getting to talk with uh, both Grayson and Neil. I appreciate this a lot. I think the only last thing I would add is that in addition to uh, the notion that there needs to be some kind of collective spirituality, which I do agree with, and the fact that that spirituality should be aiming at, uh, let's say, shared intentionality between everybody who's believing coming to God together, I believe in that too. I think there needs to be a space uh, in addition uh, to a, a top-down direction of doctrine and practice for a bottom-up trickling up of the progressive reformation of religions and of any spiritual practice so that people can be on the same page and that dissent is not diminished so that the entire spirituality doesn't collapse into complete stagnation. I think if we want to have a spirituality that continues to progress in the future, particularly a Christian spirituality, I think we need to have uh, uh, everybody who practices the religion be attentive to those who practice it and those who dissent from it too. Excellent. So before we conclude, before we do the uh, the promos, because I want you guys to promote everything and anything that you have, I want to say for all the people who are enjoying this conversation, if you want to uh, join BTR to continue on this conversation, we have a Discord, and I'm going to put the Discord right now in the chat. So listen, guys, become a member of the Discord today. You are not going to regret it. There is a great community there of people that I've met throughout the years of doing BTR, and these are all very curious, interesting people talking about the similar things that are being talked about here. And if this is your first time on BTR, what mainly it does is it brings people together who otherwise would never really have a chance to speak to each other. So that is something that I am very committed to doing, and I really appreciate all your help. And lastly, again, patreon.com slash break the rules. If you become a patron, you're going to get a lot of wonderful prizes, including these beautiful magnets that you see on the screen right now, created by my father, Alexander Polyakov. This is 20 dollar tier reward these beautiful magnets for the 50 dollar tier you are going to get a custom magnet and if you're a fan of sticks hex and hammer 666 which i know some of you guys are you're going to get a magnificent sticks dragon go to patreon you're going to see that beautiful dragon so you know what i'm talking about so anyway with that being said final uh, promos whatever you guys are working on let's start with uh let's start with neil what do you what do you got just check me out at youtube.com slash gnostic informant i pretty much up- upload Mostly every day. Sometimes take a day off. But yeah, mostly every day. I just uploaded a video today about Carl Jung's Gnosticism, his his version in the Red Book that he gave us so so uh, so nicely. And uh, so that's that that comes out tomorrow. I'm hosting John Dominic Crossan. I don't know if you guys know who he is. He's a Christian. He's a very famous Christian actually. He's going to be on my show live at two o'clock. So if you guys want to watch that, we're going to talk about Luke and Paul. The depiction, nice. the depiction of Paul and Acts, and then comparing it to just kind of have an open conversation about those two things the man the man is a beast i mean we're talking about you know the beast from revelations neil is the beast personified the amount of work that you're able to do i don't understand it plus you got that beard going on you know like the hairy you know so uh, yeah exactly all right grayson you're up next uh yeah so i'll plug um you can see most of my writing at uh the spectator world uh, that's where I, I do, I get most of my stuff published. Um, I just had a piece come out about, uh, the ways in which I felt that the original Game of Thrones series actually preserved a lot of the wisdom of Tolkien, even though it presented itself as being subversive of Tolkien. 
nice. um, and how I'm not expecting great things from the, the spinoff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a piece coming out soon about uh, the idea of competence and how competence is the way to happiness, I suppose. Um, that should be out tomorrow. Um, unfortunately, most of it's paywalled, uh, which is annoying. I can't even read my own stuff half the time. But <laughs> uh, sh- sh- Should I tell them how to unpaywall it, or is that something? Uh... Uh, yeah, if you hit the three little dots and go to cached version, that usually works. Um... Yeah, or, or archive.today, or archive.is, yeah, yeah. one of those usually has. But anyway, um... that's that's a little spoiler. Yeah, so that's where I'm, uh, that's where I'm going. Uh, beyond that, I don't... Uh, I don't really have a whole lot of, uh, I don't really do video content much, and I uh, very much admire uh, the two of you who are able to uh, do all this video content. It's uh, it's truly amazing, and I, I envy you. <laughs> well, Mr. Amazing is definitely somebody to be envious of from his beautiful avatar, which is like some psychedelic space thing that I don't understand, to the presentation style of your videos. You are a one-of-a-kind YouTube documentarian, and I know that you are going to go far, my brother. So uh, tell us what you have working on, what you have cooking in the back room, uh, whether it's going to be as beautiful and addictive as the blue meth of your beautiful videos, of the, the uh, Walter White meth quality that is the quality of your videos brother but yeah let me know what you got cooking oh, thanks so much for the introduction i appreciate that they may have overstated it a little bit uh yeah i have a blog uh that i post on every monday and friday blog.mramazing.org all spelled out uh and in terms of videos uh i'm working on one right now that's going to recap my time in college but also in addition to that how I think being a YouTuber and just being online in general transforms your uh, self-concept. So if you're interested in that, uh, in subjectivity, then check it out. It's not going to be out for a bit yet, though. Well, I'm already, I already can't wait. I'm probably not going to be able to sleep. I'm going to be thinking, oh, man, where's this video coming out? Anyway, guys, thank you so much for watching. I really appreciate it. Listen subscribe what is wrong with you subscribe right now to the stream we got to get the numbers up we got to get the people and we're bringing everybody together i want to find the greatest youtubers on planet earth bring them all together on the stream bring them together with all these various professors academics feminists social justice warriors i don't care anymore everything is coming together everything is going to congeal into this mass of chaos and whatever it's going to be fun it's going to be amazing and i'm glad to be alive and on the ride of our lives man 2022 what are what's what are we gonna what's gonna happen guys it's gonna be cold it's you know, the electricity whatever we'll figure it out we'll figure it out when we get there thank you guys so much for watching subscribe patreon.com slash break the rules Mwah!